Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement Author in the Room conference call. My name is Leslie and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now all participants are in a listen-only mode as later we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touch-tone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead. Thank you, Leslie, and welcome, everybody. We're delighted that you could join us today to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, or what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock um, Eastern Time. The next call will be on Wednesday, June 18th, uh, and the article for that call will be combined screening with ultrasound and mammography versus mammography alone in women at elevated risk of breast cancer. And that's by Dr. Wendy Berg and appeared in the May 14th uh, edition of JAMA. Today, our featured, art, uh, our featured uh, authors are Dr. Barbara Howard and her husband, Dr. Jim Howard. We're delighted to have both of them. And the article, Effect of Lower Targets for Blood Pressure and LDL Cholesterol on Atherosclerosis and Diabetes, the SANS Randomized Trial, and that appeared in the April 9th, 2008 edition of JAMA. Welcome, Dr. Doctors Howard. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Dr. Barbara Howard, the lead uh, author on the article, uh, and I understand that she always comes before Jim. That's very important. <laughs> yeah, she, she is the senior scientist and former president of MedStar Research Institute. Uh, she is has a very extensive uh, uh, biographical uh, background. She is currently the chair of the American Heart Association Council on Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Metabolism. She served as a member of the NIH Expert Panel on Obesity that developed guidelines for the treatment and prevention of obesity and also serves on editorial boards of several scientific journals, and she has an extensive uh, and rich academic uh, uh, background. Her husband, Dr. Jim Howard. Jim is a, an internist and endocrinologist, uh, an experienced clinical trial investigator, uh, who provides currently provides lipid consultations and advisory services to researchers and clinicians in MedStar Health. Jim also has a uh, very rich history. He's a professor of medicine at George Washington University School of Medicine in D.C. Uh, and chair of the Graduate Medical Education Committee at the Washington Hospital Center, where he also serves as the vice president of academic affairs at this time. Um, again, uh, welcome both Barbara and Jim. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the interest in our paper. Um, as you know, it's well established now that uh, controlling uh, lipids and blood pressure in people with diabetes will prevent cardiovascular complications, but there is a debate about what the treatment target should be. Um, up until this trial, the studies were largely studies testing therapeutic agents, which are uh, rather than evaluating treatment targets. And so we set out to design this study to actually directly compare treatment targets. 
Um, our hypothesis was that lowering LDL and blood pressure to uh, lower than the conventional targets now prescribed by the American Diabetes and American Heart Associations would, in fact, result in improved atherosclerosis. We um, had uh, 500 or well, 499 men and women with diabetes, and they were randomized either to the uh, accepted current targets of an LDL cholesterol of 100, non-HDL cholesterol of 130, and a systolic blood pressure of 130. Um, and then the aggressive, what we call the aggressive group, uh, where we were aiming for an LDL cholesterol of 70 and a systolic blood pressure of 115, and of course, non-HDL of 100. Um, these, uh, were non these were diabetic men and women who did, had not had a cardiovascular event. Um, our inclusion criteria were simply that they had a currently or at least a history within the last year of an elevated LDL and systolic blood pressure and that we could measure their, uh, their uh, carotid IMT. This is a surrogate endpoint trial. It's only three years duration and the surrogate endpoints were uh, carotid and uh, cardiac ultrasound with the primary endpoint being carotid IMT. Um, we um, exclusion criteria were the typical exclusions for uh, this kind of a primary uh, trial, um, and um, I, the um, treatment targets were uh, based on the ATP3 and American Diabetes Association guidelines. Um, Jim will go through with you. We used algorithms, prescribed algorithms for managing the lipids and blood pressure. Uh, and this was done in a real primary care setting. This was out in rural Indian communities uh, where um, the providers were ba basically mid-level practitioners who had a, a, a study physician at each center. And then um, uh, Jim and, uh, and one other physician uh, specialist available for consultation uh, when they had problems. Um, and he'll go through details as how they managed to do that because I think uh, one really uh, key thing about this study was demonstrating that in that setting we could get to and maintain targets. Uh, the patients, um, as, as you know, were American Indians with type 2 diabetes. This is a very good model pa uh, population uh, for type 2 diabetes and has been shown to really classically represent the uh, progression and complications of this disease. They were overweight, uh, average age in their mid-60s, um, and they had uh, hemoglobin A1Cs that averaged about 8. Uh, only about 20% of them smoked, and they did not have markedly abnormal renal function at baseline um, and, uh, because we used as an exclusion uh, uh, creatinine above 1.2. Um, as you can see from the paper, we met and achieved uh, targets in both groups by about 12 months uh, for uh, LDL, for non-HDL cholesterol, and for systolic blood pressure. Things like BMI, um, uh, glucose levels, hemoglobin A1C, waist circumference, none of those things changed during the trial. Um, these two groups, I should say, were uh, treated equally in that they were seen uh, at the same interval every three months, and the study um, 
staff delivered their lipid and blood pressure care. All of the other diabetes management was done by their local provider, which tended to be Indian Health Service um, uh, system. Um, as uh, and, and we achieved uh, about a 30 point, a 30 milligram per deciliter difference in LDL cholesterol and non-HDL cholesterol. We had very minor elevations in HDL cholesterol in the aggressive group compared to the control group. And in terms of blood pressure, we had about a 13 point difference, 13 millimeters of mercury difference between the two groups. Again, Jim will go through the outcome of, of the um, kinds of medications we used, but I have to just indicate that we used about one and a half lipid-lowering uh, drugs in the aggressive group, 1.2 in the standard group, and for blood pressure it was about two and a half um, meds in the aggressive group and one and a half in the standard group. Um, with that... Um, uh, treatment after three years, uh, we uh, looked at the, we had actually done the carotid and coronary uh, echoes at um, 18 months as well as three years, but uh, the data um, uh, are primarily analyzed, the primary endpoint as a three-year changes, and what uh, we achieved was a significant uh, decrease in IMT in the aggressive group. In the standard group, it was virtually unchanged. This was a significant difference then between the two groups with a P of 0.001. This was an intention to treat analysis, and we imputed there were we had very very good follow-up over 90%. But the uh, number of few people who did miss their endpoint measurement, the data were imputed in the aggressive group using the average change in the standard group. Uh, we also saw uh, similar significant improvement in arterial uh, cross-sectional area, and this is um, measure of the uh, of the cross-sectional area at a slice in the carotid, and it represents both the atherosclerotic burden as well as um, other causes of wall thickness. Um, for for secondary endpoints, we had a number of other carotid measures, mainly measures of more advanced atherosclerosis like plaque, and those did not differ between the two groups. Uh, when we looked at the echocardiogram data, we also had a significant difference in the two groups between in the LV mass, and we found decreases in LV mass in both groups, but a greater decrease in the aggressive group. Um, none of the other echo parameters were significantly changed. We did have some cardiovascular events. They were carefully monitored and adjudicated using standardized criteria. What we found was um, an unexpectedly low number of events in the standard group, and the, way, the reason I say unexpected is we have a lot of population data in this population for people with diabetes and their event rate and no difference between the aggressive and standard groups. And that was either in a primary CVD endpoint or a more a broader endpoint that would include other um, uh, less conventional uh, and uh, clinical events. Um, so in summary, um, we have concluded that you can achieve both aggressive and standard targets and maintaining maintain them in a 
in a basic clinical setting using step treatment algorithms. Uh, one of the things that we um, had was point of care LDL of LDLN blood pressure measures, which Jim will go through. Um, our rates of adverse events that he again is going to uh, discuss were low and uh, is similar to those seen in most trials. Um, we did get regression of IMT, so that regression of atherosclerosis, uh, and, and initial steps of atherosclerosis, uh, and a decrease in LV mass, but there were no differences in clinical endpoints. So we're left with uh, concluding that um, reducing LDL and blood pressure can be achieved um, and longer-term follow-up is going to be necessary to really see if this can be translated into uh, favorable uh, risk-benefit. We uh, certainly think on the basis of the many other uh, studies and our own data that show that IMT uh, and LV mass are directly predictive of, of clinical events and that also uh, I strongly think we need more trials to evaluate treatment targets. So I'll call on Jim to give a little more detail on the clinical interventions. There were a number of things about this population that uh, made them uh, very, I think, uh, productive in terms of doing this kind of study. We have been involved with uh, almost all of the population from which they were chosen for the last 20 years in an observational trial called Strongheart. And Strongheart was started in the uh, late 80s to look at cardiovascular risk factors and their relationship with coronary artery disease uh, in uh, American Indians. Uh, one of the first things that we found was that there was a very, very high rate of cardiovascular disease that was almost always related to diabetes, uh, that the two factors within the diabetic group that were very predictive were LDL cholesterol and non-HDL cholesterol, as we later found out, and blood pressure. So we already knew in designing this that this was a population in which those factors were very much associated with increased coronary disease. From our long 20-year follow-up, we also knew a lot about what was their natural history. Uh, we could, uh, from studies, know that the carotid intimomedial thickness was pathologically atherosclerosis. We knew in this population that it definitely predicted cardiovascular events, which has been one of the, I think, criticisms of surrogate endpoints. Do they really predict events when you change them? Well, we know in the natural state they were predictive. And we also know what was the progression with time in this population of carotid IMT. Uh, so those things really helped us to set up this study, I think, in a more uh, rational kind of fashion. Uh, we're one of the few groups that really has looked at non-HDL cholesterol. Uh, I was a member of the ATP3 panel. Uh, Non-HDL cholesterol was the second goal of therapy that we recommended. Uh, we did that in lieu of the fact we could not set goals for triglycerides, but it's seldom really uh, treated aggressively. And we did, as Barbara said, treat to targets of LDL and non-HDL cholesterol as well as the blood pressure. Uh, so those, I think, are some significant differences. Uh, we, we did have a... Uh, uh, initial phase of education of the various sites where we were setting these, stu these studies up. There were four sites, one in Phoenix, 
one in the northern part of Arizona on the Navajo Nation, uh, one in Oklahoma, and one in South Dakota. And uh, the hypertension uh, consultant, Dr. Matt Weir from University of Maryland, and I each made an appearance there giving a grand rounds about this study. We then had weekly telephone calls with each of the each of the mid-level practitioners uh, and their physicians in charge, and then each of us was on call. They had our cell phones, our beepers, our home phones, etc., and they would call us with individual patients. Uh, however, I, I just have to show a great deal of admiration for the fact that they were able to reach these goals, and with uh, you know just the, the the hard work that uh, I think marks. Uh, uh, nurse practitioners and these mid-level practitioners. They they often manage numbers far better than we physicians do. Uh, there were numerous calls to begin with, but the algorithm was set up in such a way that it, after uh, it was started, it became more or less a more automatic process. The algorithm for lipids was we started with a statin if the LDL was above 100, and we titrated generally to maximal dose of statin or to their goal of less than 70 in the aggressive group, less than 100 in the other group. If we needed further LDL lowering, uh, either because maximal doses of statin or because maximal tolerable doses of statin were not uh, effective, we then added the zetamibe or well call, and it turned out that almost 80 people in the uh, very aggressive group were on azetamide plus a statin. Uh, the non-HDL goals then were treated with uh, either a phenofibrate, with uh, fish oil, with omega-3 fatty acids, or niacin. We used a fair amount of both phenofibrate and fish oil with uh, sparing, I think, uses of niacin. In the blood pressure group, we started with an ACE or an ARB, depending on their previous history as to whether they were coffers on the ACE. We added the thiazide as the second agent. Uh, then we went to uh, another uh, group of, of, of drugs that were, uh, you know, a fairly standard variety of uh, third-line kinds of drugs, uh, either uh, atenolol or nifedipine is number three, uh, adding the opposite agent for number four, doxazosin number five, and then hydralazine or minoxidil or reserpine if we needed it. And as Barbara's told you, we, we were able to get to these goals and keep patients at there with a fairly low, I think, dose of, of drug uh, in, uh, in the groups. Uh, again, just to uh, reiterate, uh, in the standard group, 1.2 lipid-lowering agents and 1.6 antihypertensive agents. In the aggressive group, 1.5 lipid-lowering agents on average and 2.5 hypertensive agents. The rate of uh, adverse events was, I think, fairly uh, standard. Uh, we had the usual, but I think probably less frequent muscle complaints, aches and pains. We had no cases of myositis, no cases of rhabdomyolysis. Uh, the issues with antihypertensive drugs were postural hypotension, some dehydration, uh, those kinds of issues that are common. Serious adverse events, we had none with the lipid-lowering drugs, and we had only five uh, serious adverse events. These were events that we thought were directly related to the antihypertensive drugs. Uh, several of them, at least two of the patients, had developed some chronic renal 
insufficiency at the time, and uh, in one case there was probably uh, agents that were being given by the study coordinators and agents being given by their own physicians that uh, that really began to, I think, uh, uh, add up in that regard. So I think the, the bottom line, again, as Barbara has said, is that we were able to get to these very aggressive goals in locations that were the middle of the desert of Arizona, uh, the northeast corner, the Canyon de Chez area of uh, Arizona, the Badlands of South Dakota, and using these uh, mid-level practitioners with uh, with uh, frequent backup from their own physicians and from the consultants. And we did that with a minimum amount of, I think, uh, adverse and certainly almost no serious adverse events. Uh, the remaining thing we need to continue to follow this population uh, to really answer the question that Barbara left of is it really worth it, even though we got a decline in IMT, uh, is it really worth it to um, to go to these uh, goals uh, with in diabetics when we had no increase in cardiovascular events in either group? The other thing I might mention is we not only got the uh, the decline or the regression of carotid IMT in the aggressive group, we saw a lack of progression. We saw less progression than would have been predicted in the standard group. So there was definitely effects in both groups, and it's clear that treating patients to treating diabetics to the currently recommended goals of the ADA and the uh, ATP3 in diabetics without coronary disease do produce, I think, positive results. I'll be happy. Uh, we'll be happy to take any questions. Fantastic, Jim. Thank you very much, and Barbara as well. Uh, and we want to get to those questions. I think you've re reframed them very nicely uh, right there at the end, Jim. And those are, I think, the clinically important questions. And the purpose of author in the room is to take uh, such wonderfully designed studies and then think hard about their application in a clinical setting and how do we use this new knowledge for performance improvement. Before we move to questions, uh, and we would encourage you to. Uh, uh, think about what you'd like to ask, both about this study and about the general topic of both lipid and, uh, and blood pressure management and diabetics. We'd like to stress how important your participation is uh, in the call, uh, not just from the perspective of your questions, but from your experience as well. If you want to share that experience, we're delighted uh, to hear it because we know that there is some wonderful experience out there. There are approximately uh, 50 lines called in with uh, numerous people on each line. Uh, some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only, just for your information. One other note before we move to the question and answer session, the call is being recorded. will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites and streaming audio or podcast. Complete details can be found on their website, in particular the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are available there as well. So let's move to uh, question and answer now uh, with uh, Dr. Barbara Howard and Dr. Jim Howard, uh, and if uh, we'll ask Leslie to come on and give you instructions about how to get in the queue, and then we'll move to your questions. Leslie? Thank you. For those of you who have a question, please press star 1 on your touchstone phone, and your questions will be answered in the order that they are received. If you are using a speakerphone, you must pick up your handset before pressing star 1 to register for a question. Once again, for those of you who have a question, please press star one on your touch-tone phone. So Please allow are, one moment for the first question. As people are getting in the queue, um, uh, so Jim and Barbara, I guess I would ask you the, the big uh, question uh, following this article. So here, 
uh, like many of the people on the call, I am a clinician and uh, seeing our diabetics day after day. Uh, based on uh, on this study, what would you recommend I do differently? Well, my uh, I'll start with the kind of researcher's point of view, and then I know Jim will add. Uh, I think we have to first stress on on um, making our standard target. I'm sorry if am I. There was a little background noise. Go okay. ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I want to stress um, achieving standard targets first. If you look at the data throughout the country, the by vast majority of diabetic patients are not getting even to an LDL of 100 and a systolic blood pressure of 130. So I think that's the first step, and I think our data in the um, standard group where uh, the IMT rarely, hardly progressed and the endpoints were so low is would argue for uh, a great benefit just getting to that point. Yeah, I, I think that's a very valid point. I think we, we've demonstrated here and multiple other studies have demonstrated that getting to that LDL of less than 100, the blood pressure of less than 130, and is borne out in this trial, uh, produced, I think, positive clinical results as well as a slowing of progression of the carotid IMT. Again, let me emphasize non-HDL cholesterol. I think it is the least well understood and followed of all of the ATP3 recommendations, and certainly in patients with diabetes uh, and the metabolic syndrome, triglycerides are an important factor, and this was a way to set some uh, uh, back into some standards, I think, for uh, triglycerides. Personally, uh, when one looks at the residual risk that continues even after you get to LDL goals, um, I have begun to be more aggressive, and particularly in diabetics who I think are at an increased risk. And, you know, you look at the number of risk factors, you look at the activity of their disease, and I think I am more frequently taking them to lipid levels that we see in the aggressive group. One point we did not make, I think, is that when we did the appropriate statistical analyses, it appears that the lipid lowering was responsible for the IMT change, and the blood pressure lowering was responsible for the change in the left ventricular mass index. There's an excellent editorial with this that points out that the risk of treating to the lipid levels appears to be less because of the lack of adverse, serious adverse events. So I think that, that gives us a little more pause to, uh, to be as aggressive in, as we did in our aggressive group with lipids and be perhaps more thoughtful and uh, uh, individualized with the blood pressure goals. Yeah, and, and again, going back to the, uh, the population picture, as you know now, uh, if people with diabetes vary, and, and depending on uh, the uh, population you're working with, sometimes you will see quite young patients with type 2 diabetes. They can be young women of childbearing age, and, um, and uh, as opposed to you might see older people with a boatload of risk factors and a huge family history. So I think it is that I want to stress the point Jim made about thinking about the individual patient and their total risk. If they're a smoker and their father died of an MI when he was 40, I'd be much more likely to uh, think you were justified than if it was a young child-bearing age woman uh, with no real other risk factors. And I think what makes this uh, really clinically uh, relevant is the fact that now with very safe 
initial agents for both lipids and blood pressure, those with fairly low degrees of side effects, we really can be uh, more aggressive than we've been in the past. Right, right, without the side effects. Uh, lots more questions uh, to come. Uh, Leslie, why don't we see who's in the queue? At this time, there are no questions. So once okay. again, for those of you who have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. Uh, this, oh. is not an un this is not an uncommon occurrence where we have a no. lot of listeners. And yeah, Go ahead. Uh, and uh, and uh, nobody in the queue with questions. So again, if you have questions, please uh, feel free to uh, to get in to ask us or share your experiences. Dr. One of the yes, I'm sorry for the interruption, sir. We have two people um, in the queue to ask questions. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Our first question comes from Jesse Polanski of CMS. Please proceed with your question. And if you oh. could just re-announce re your or reintroduce uh, yourself and just let us know again where you're from, that would be great. Uh, yeah, hi, it's Jesse Polanski. I'm not in an official capacity, so I'm asking on behalf of myself. Sure. Um, and with all due respect, this is not meant to be confrontational. We, we've heard a lot in the news about ghost-written papers. Can you describe who wrote this paper, this interesting paper we're discussing? I can tell you that I wrote it, and I did the majority of the editing. We have a, a large group of authors, they all uh produced questions, comments, that kind of thing, but I wrote it. And I can affirm that, having lived with her during that period of time. <laughs> I also personally oversaw the data analysis. We have very good statisticians in this um, group here, both at our institution and at the University of Oklahoma. There were three involved in the data analysis, but I oversaw it. Also, we can point out that this study was sponsored by the NHLBI. Uh, we did have some drug donations. We Atorvastatin was donated, and one of the phenofibrate forms was donated. But other than that, uh, the drugs were supplied completely, and there was no uh, pharmaceutical involvement other than those initial donations. ISAR also. ISAR, I'm sorry. That's right, one of the blood pressure. From Merck, yeah. Well, well thank you. Uh, thank you for the question, Jesse. We've we've already been through the other family dynamics between the Dr. Howards and I. I, I, would, say that, uh, I would trust their opinions on this one. Yeah. Um, uh, Leslie, next caller. Our next question comes from Max Brummett of Kaiser. Please proceed with your question. Hi, I'm Max Brummett. I work in a lipid clinic, and I was wondering, in light of the enhanced trial, was those people taking Zetia in your study also found to have a decrease in the intimal thickness, and were any of those having a cardiac event? Um, Thank you for asking that. Yeah, uh, excellent we'll both, question. We'll both answer that, too. Um, I can tell you that a third of the people in the aggressive group were taking it, and I can tell you I can't tell you uh, separately. You can see we got a major change in the group as a whole because we are currently writing that up, and... Uh, the uh, the journal, because I they think it will go to JAMA again, uh, does not want any results released until the paper comes out. So um, in, in the interest of, of preserving the, the uh, publication, uh, we, are, uh, we can't talk about the actual numbers. Yeah, I, I think that it doesn't take a lot of imagination, though, to understand if a third of the people were in a group that... Uh, uh, got a carotid IMT reduction that uh, there uh, couldn't have been a, a negative effect of any significance. Uh, I think there are many, many problems with the enhanced trial. Uh, 
Number one, it had absolutely no statistically significant data. Uh, the other thing that's important here is we followed carotid IMT for three years. Uh, the baseline carotid IMT was above 0.8, uh, so it was a reasonable level of carotid IMT. We did not really get significant change in carotid IMT until the second 18 months. As Barbara told you, we measured at baseline 18 months in three years. And we really got the majority of our change and, and uh, regression in that second 18-month period. So I think to do a study for less than three years is probably not justified in, uh, in CIMT issues. Uh, and I think, again, we started with a much more realistic carotid IMT for a group of diabetics in that regard. So I think that's uh, you know, one of the things that I think made this study successful for us. Um, the, uh, the, your trial was not per se designed to assess this, but it would be great to uh, have your, we have an echoing, so if anybody's not on mute, that, oh, there we go. There you go. Um, the, uh, it wasn't designed to assess this, but you did look at other, I think, uh, less traditionally used markers that uh, many of us in clinical care don't use regularly in terms of assessing risk. And, uh, you know, in particular, some people, as an example, may be more recently using high-sensitivity C-reactive protein and uh, other markers to try to give them a sense of aggressiveness, uh, the degree of the desired aggressiveness. Any thoughts on that and what we ought to be doing in, in clinical practice at this time, whether in the diabetic population or in the general population? Um, well, as you can see in our data, we did get uh, some decrease in CRP, but not a significant difference between the two groups. Now, note that these, this group starts out with a CRP close to three, and this is typical. In people with diabetes, CRP goes up, and when people are heavy, obese, uh, CRP goes up or overweight. And so it it is a not a good population, and I would say any diabetic population, to really expect CRP to be a very good marker uh, for you. Um, the one uh, marker that I find valuable from the studies that we've done and a lot of other studies in diabetics is albuminuria or some other measures of renal function because they are strong predictors of cardiovascular endpoints and diabetic patients who have even uh, mild uh, albuminuria approaching, say, the 300 uh, range uh, milligrams of, of uh, albumin per gram of creatinine um, will have two, three, four-fold enhanced risk of, 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 of clinical events. So I, I really think that's, in, and it's standard of care anyway in a diabetic patient, I think it's a very useful tool. The... Uh CRP, as Barbara's already pointed out, and we followed this in this population for a long time. It begins very early when the metabolic syndrome appears. It's probably made in this case by uh, uh, monocytes in the adipose tissue and not in the coronary arteries. So it's not nearly as predictive of more advanced or more severe cardiac disease as it is in a non-obese, non-diabetic population. Uh, we are looking in the strong heart study at some other inflammatory markers to see if they are any better, but we don't have that data yet. I think the real challenge to the clinician uh, now is uh, what to do with the intermediate risk patient. 
the very high-risk patient, we have pretty good data that we need to treat their LDL and their non-HDL and their blood pressure aggressively. The very low-risk patient, uh, we really can uh, be satisfied, I think, with lifestyle measures and mild therapy. But it's that intermediate-risk patient. Even though ATP3 declared type 2 diabetes a CHD risk equivalent, we know in this population, as Barbara mentioned earlier, there are early younger diabetics with fewer risk factors who do not really fall into that same degree of risk. So this is a population that I think we need to uh, begin to think about how are we going to evaluate them for the presence of atherosclerosis for primary prevention. One is the ankle brachial index. If the ankle brachial index is low, uh, less than 0.9, you can, I think, assume that they have peripheral vessel disease also. Uh, there are obviously problems with the uh, hard arteries in with the ankle brachial index, but that usually gives you a higher value, and you can pick that out as the false positive. Uh, I think we may well be looking at carotid IMTs in the future at these patients or some other measure of endogenous non-invasive atherosclerosis. Uh, and I think that's, that's where the clinician now is challenged. And about all you can do is highly individualize from the number of risk factors that they have, the, the I think, uh, the speed of development of their disease and progression as to how much more aggressive you want to be. You know, since you brought up um, the use of surrogate endpoints, I know in a primary care setting um, you often can't afford to uh, screen or get paid for a carotid or, or a coronary echo. But one of the things that is standard of care is a periodic ECG in uh, diabetic patients. And we did analyze our study, and I think this has been done in some others. And as you all know, the people with without any clinical events uh, with diabetes, you'll often see small uh, ST depressions on the ECG. And those we found to be highly predictive of future events. I think a, a 50 uh, um, millimeter or, or one, 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 half one, half a, one half millimeter in the uh, you can see I'm not a clinician. One half of a millimeter in that uh, tracing is is uh, about a threefold risk of future events. Well, Barbara, I am a clinician. I would have had a hard time with that as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. We all well, know what they, you meant. Yeah. That's yeah, right. We, uh, you know, we sort of, I think a lot of these studies, we try to look for things that are clinically sure. uh, useful and not expensive. Right. Good. And again, um, that's where the ankle brachial index uh, yeah. is a procedure that can really? be done uh, clinically and should be. Right, right. absolutely. Uh, Leslie, anybody else in the queue? At this time, Dr. Kahlo, there are no, no further questions. Thank you. I, I, you know, another thing that I, I think we struggle with uh, in the office, and I suspect we don't do uh, as many ankle brachial ind uh, indices as we should, um, I, I al also wonder a lot about blood pressure management. It just seems absurd to me that we still manage blood pressure based on a couple of blood pressure readings in a doctor's office, uh, you know, a couple times a year. So almost all of our patients, uh, in in all of our patients, we with hypertension, we recommend that they go and get their own blood pressure cuff and monitor themselves at home, and then send that information to us. Do you find a big difference uh, in those two groups? Did you did you do much self management uh, in the study? And if so, what did you find? 
Jim, you might want to answer that. Well, um, this is a uh, a population that has available the Indian Health Service care, so they probably are uh, taking advantage of that without the concern of the cost. However, what really makes this population very challenging is many of them do not have telephones. Uh, they live in the middle of some fairly isolated areas. Uh, we had to do a fair amount of uh, going and picking them up and bringing them in at times to uh, get them into the clinic. So we did have to, I think, introduce the usual measures of self-management and try to educate them uh, as well as we could about you know checking their own glucose, uh, measuring their own blood pressure. Uh, we didn't really follow that. Uh, in terms of parameters of the study. So in terms of commenting on differences between the two groups, uh, I really can't uh, make any judgments there. We did look very carefully, though, at the confounder of the various kinds of uh, hypoglycemic therapy. As Barbara said, there was really no difference in the carotid, uh, I'm sorry, in the hemoglobin A1C at the beginning, and there was little change and no significant difference in the end. There was no significant differences in the number of TZDs, metformin, other drugs that were being used. So we think this is uh, really from uh, the lipid management and the blood pressure management uh, that we uh, were able to give in the trial. Now, getting back to the blood pressure, we have done some 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure measures. We didn't get funding to do that till later on in the trial, so we've only got one measure on each patient in in about half of them. And so we will be analyzing that. But the one thing we were able to do is to compare our uh, in-clinic, research clinic, blood pressure measures to those in their IHS record, and they don't agree well. And that wouldn't be a surprise to you because the patients are often upset or or nervous um, more in uh, your setting than in the the research setting especially we 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 have a standardized protocol where they sit for a few minutes and you take three readings and you average the two so that i think you're right that that sort of random uh measure you get is probably not a very good one and if you could get the patient to uh, monitor themselves you're probably going to get a much better picture just reviewing today's set of journals there is there is an article on the fact that we often do not react to blood pressures that are above our goals in diabetics, uh, that maybe as much as 50% of the time we probably are concerned about is this a true reading, et cetera. So I think your point is is excellent, Chuck, that we really need to be uh, looking more carefully and, and, and evaluating these pressures and treating them appropriately. We probably under-treat them just like we under-treat the, uh, uh, the lipid measures. Right, and uh, you know Jesse is on the call from uh, CMS. He spoke up a little earlier, and I think it, you know, I think the, still the only code that you can use uh, for ambulatory care, twenty-four uh, hour blood pressure monitoring, I think is white coat hypertension, which to me seems uh, a little bit silly that that we can't use ambulatory yeah. monitors uh, yeah. more regularly to really get a sense as to what somebody's blood pressure is doing throughout the day. No, I think you're right. Very, very much so. Yeah. So that's a, that's an area of future exploration. I think we all need to think hard about and how we engage our patients and doing their own monitoring at uh, at home in that regards. I know you you've uh, you spoke a little bit about and I think this is not an issue but we might as well talk about it, about the, the unique population. This was done in 
uh, and sort of the Indian population. Uh, any other uh, issues there in terms of the generalizability of the study? Yes, we've uh, we have I've been working with this population for actually uh, 30 years, and um, it, it, 30 years ago, uh, the epidemic of diabetes that they were seeing hadn't quite occurred in. Uh, some of the other groups in the United States. And so the question was always raised, well, was this applicable? But as the epidemic of diabetes has swept through every ethnic group in the U.S. and most throughout the world, um, the pattern, the natural history of what's observed in the predictors, the development, the complications are all identical. So they've, ser they've really been an excellent model population for type 2 diabetes. But uh, yes, I still think that we need to do these studies in a number of groups. For example, one of the populations where hypertension, where um, diabetes is high, is in African Americans, and they tend to have uh, much higher blood pressures that tend to be harder to control. And so I do think um, it, it would be wise to do uh, some trials. Um, in that group for hypertension uh, management and appropriate targets. Almost uh, 40 years ago, uh, 1988, 30 years ago, when Barbara and I first moved to, uh, to Phoenix, uh, she was at the Phoenix Indian Medical Center working with the Pima Indian Project, and I was at a local hospital uh, running the education programs, and there was something known as the Pima Paradox, and that was despite the fact the Pima Indians had very, very significant rates of diabetes, they did not seem to get coronary artery disease. Uh, they had some amputations and some other problems, and we tried to explain that away. But one of the first things that was, I think, made very obvious when the Strongheart study was followed was that information was old, and by the time we started Strongheart in the early, uh, late 80s, early 90s, the rates of heart disease had caught up. In other words, it, there's a period after one develops diabetes before some of the vascular abnormalities develop. And by the time we started the study, they had worse heart disease uh, than any other group. So we do have a almost a natural history here looking back uh, 100 years ago when there was no diabetes, the uh, people were lean and uh, did not have the obesity that they have now, and that as the diabetes developed, uh, lo and behold, 10, 15, 20 years later, that's when the heart disease becomes so rampant. And now, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, the diabetes is probably the main contributor to their heart disease. Yeah, and that's a particular relevant comment for Hispanics in our country, yes. which are yes. now the largest ethnic group, and some of them actually have a fair amount of American Indian admixture. Um, some of the data will show that uh, to date, now they're a young population, but the CBD rates seem to be somewhat lower. But they have a lot of diabetes, and if this same lag uh, is applicable, which it, it should be, uh, then there's going to be a lot more cardiovascular disease in Hispanic patients as they've had their diabetes for 20 years or so. Right. Now, Jim, um, uh, you mentioned in your uh, in your opening comments uh, about the importance of non-HDL uh, cholesterol. And I'd just like for you to differentiate that for us a little bit. Most of us who order lipid panels, you know, we get we get total cholesterol triglycerides, um, 
uh, HDL and LDL, cal a calculated LDL, but we That's don't really right. get a pure measure of non-HDL. That may be a new term for some. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, I think, thank you, I appreciate your, your, your doing that. Non-HDL has been a term that has been appreciated by epidemiologists for many years. It compares with the total cholesterol to HDL ratio, the LDL to HDL ratio, and more modern in terms of early evaluation of populations, uh, it's almost as good as ApoB and perhaps LDL particle number. But basically, it's a simple arithmetic total cholesterol minus HDL. And what it represents is the sum of all of the atherosclerotic, atherogenic lipoproteins. That would be the LDL plus the intermediate density, plus the very low density lipoprotein, the two triglyceride-rich lipoproteins. When you have the LDL to goal, your non-HDL goal is then 30 above the LDL goal. And if you're not down to less than 30 above the LDL goal, that means you still have atherogenic lipoprotein, probably in the form of the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, uh, that are still giving that patient a risk for atherosclerosis. So get the LDL to goal first, let's say less than 100, then treat the triglycerides to get the non-HDL goal to less than 130, as we did in the standard group, or if you're going to less than 70 for LDL, you want to treat the non-HDL goal to less than 100. And I think in the strong heart study, we've shown that it is even a stronger predictor of cardiovascular disease and certainly is a strong predictor of continued risk uh, in those patients that have been uh, treated in various interventional trials. Now, it might be particularly useful in diabetic patients because it is, yes. Thank there you. tend to be more atherogenic triglyceride-bearing lipoproteins in the diabetics. Yeah, I think in, in that, that's a very, very good point. The, the, it's the, usually what we thought, talk about is the remnant IDL and DLDL. In fact, IDL is seldom found in the circulation except in patients with diabetes and metabolic syndrome. So most of the triglyceride-rich lipoprotein would be VLDL. The big, large, fluffy, puffy VLDL, as they're referred to, probably cause pancreatitis. The small remnant forms are atherogenic and are directly contributing to, uh, to atherosclerotic disease. That was a helpful discussion. I think the, the simple calculation of total cholesterol minus HDL is, is very yeah. helpful to understand how to calculate non-HDL cholesterol and then what do you do with it uh, it's, was perfect. It's been debated as to whether we should start putting that on the lab form. Right. My only concern with that is that the labs will probably charge you $10 more to do that simple bit of arithmetic. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, we just need to make physicians uh, more aware of its importance and more aware of the utility, I think, of doing it. Right. Uh, Leslie, any other questions in the queue? At this time, Dr. Kylo, there are no further questions. Wonderful. Well, uh, uh, Jim and Barbara, we have just a few minutes left. Do you just want to summarize your recommendations here towards the end before we, uh, before we close the call? Yes, I think first and foremost, um, it's important to, to pay attention to blood pressure and lipid management in diabetic patients. Too often, because it's so hard to do, um, the, the providers focus on, on glucose control and ignore those two. Those are very valuable in terms of preventing uh, clinical cardiovascular events. 
um, the first step is to get to conventional targets, and then I think it becomes an individual decision between um, the physician and their patient, depending on uh, the risk factor profile of the patient and their own desires. I think the importance of diabetes is still under-recognized in our cath lab here at the Washington Hospital Center, which is the busiest cath lab in the country now, over 50% of the patients that have proven cardiac disease have abnormal glucose. I think that the other issue is we now recognize the pre-diabetic predictor of the metabolic syndrome. And patients that, and virtually 85 to 90% of patients with type 2 diabetes have the metabolic syndrome as a uh, fairly long-term predecessor. And the time to begin very active intervention in terms of uh, lifestyle, certainly, and in terms of management of risk factors, is before they ever develop hyperglycemia and try to prevent them from developing the, uh, the, the significant issue of, of the hyperglycemic augmentation of atherosclerosis. And a couple of kind of research-related uh, postscripts. Um, one of them is I think we really need to advocate for more uh, studies where targets are compared. Uh, rather than treatment regimens, uh, both in patients with and without diabetes. And the other thing is I think we're going to have to wrestle with when uh, we can accept the results of studies with surrogate endpoints because as um, management gets better and, and the ethics of running trials requires that control groups be managed to conventional uh, targets, uh, the numbers of events are decreasing in, in, in clinical trial populations, and it's becoming prohibitively expensive to do uh, the n number of people for the length of time needed to get uh, clinical events. So this is a dilemma that has no solution now, but I think it really needs some thoughtful work. Well, Dr. Howard, thank you very much. It's really been a delightful call and a wonderful discussion. I'd like to thank both of you. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion is June 18th at 2 o'clock. The article, again, is Combined Screening with Ultrasound and Mammography versus Mammography Alone in Women at Elevated Risk of Breast Cancer. And the lead author is Dr. Wendy Berg. And again, that, that appeared in the May 14th, uh, 2008 issue of JAMA. Uh, sponsored by both the American, the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate change that can improve clinical care. Thanks to each of you for being a part of Author in the Room today, and good day. Thank you. This concludes today's conference. To disconnect, you may simply hang up.